pick up the major points as we continue in the mission this evening. We spoke of the two great commandments of God's love. And what were the two great commandments? Very good. To love God with your whole heart, with your whole soul, with all your heart and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We spoke of three maps that the church gives us in the Lenten journey, which should not just be reserved during Lent, but throughout the course of the entire year. And those three maps were? Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Very good. We spoke of three sources of sin. The devil, the flesh, and the world. Excellent. We spoke of the seven deadly sins. Pride, envy, gluttony, sloth, greed, lust, anger. We spoke of the three steps to becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. And those three steps are? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. We were taught in that overture to Lent on Ash Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday before the curtain opens on the stage for the first Sunday of Lent in which Jesus is led into the desert by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the evil one. We were taught in the first Ash Wednesday Gospel how we are to pray, to pray to your Father in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will repay you. When you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you fast, do not look gloomy. Wash your face, comb your hair. Do not look sad. Your Father who sees in secret will repay you. We used many times last night the analogy of the divine physician, that God is the divine physician who seeks to heal us of our infirmity. And just as we need to go to the doctor for our annual physical checkup, the season of Lent is an opportunity to encounter the divine physician for our spiritual checkup. After last night's conference, the most common comment that was shared with me brought me great joy. It was, Father, these are things that we already knew. Good. We're not creating something different. But again, I suggest that this Linton journey that begins two weeks from tomorrow on March 6th with Ash Wednesday is a new journey, as every Lent is a new opportunity to encounter Christ. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus says, Go and learn the meaning of the words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. My sisters and brothers, as we begin this second presentation, gaze on the face of mercy. Jesus desires mercy. And this is the theme 
of tonight's presentation in our Lenten journey of 2019. On December 8th of 2015, our Holy Father, Pope Francis, began what he called the Year of Mercy. And he said these words, and I ask you to gaze upon the Blessed Sacrament now exposed in the monstrance on the altar. Jesus Christ is the face of the Father's mercy. These words might well sum up the mystery of the Christian faith. Mercy has become living and visible in Jesus of Nazareth reaching its culmination in him. Throughout this conference tonight, I invite you to continue to gaze upon the face of mercy. For Jesus speaks to our hearts this night. Mercy is the bridge that connects God and humanity, opening our hearts to the hope of being loved forever despite the fact that we are sinners. And in any retreat or parish mission, we do well to become disciples of Jesus Christ by following the example of the very first disciple, and that is our Blessed Mother Mary. And so I invite you to join with me in prayer. Hail, Holy Queen. Mother of mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy towards us. And after this, our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary, pray for us, O Holy Mother of God. Mother of Mercy. What a beautiful title. As a child, when we would fall or cry or get scared, we often would run to the arms of our mother and grasp our arms around her shoulders, and she would comfort us. With eyes of mercy, Mary looked into the face of Christ. She gazed into his eyes and saw the face of mercy. Not long ago, I was on a plane coming home from giving a retreat. And in the row in front of me was a young family, husband and wife, a three-year-old daughter, and a five-month-old daughter. Throughout the course of the two-and-a-half-hour flight, I could see between the seats the exchange of love between the mother and that little baby girl. The baby would look intently into the eyes of the mother, and a beautiful grin would appear on the baby's face as she beheld the eyes of her gazing and loving mother. Mary gazed as a mother into the very eyes of her son, the Son of God. 
not only when she cuddled him when he was an infant, but throughout his entire life, even to that upward gaze of Mary looking up into the eyes of her son as he died on a cross. She looked up, and he looked down, and their eyes met. In this prayer to our Mother of Mercy, we ask her intercession. Turn them, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy towards us. We ask her to bring us to her Son because we are sinners and in need of mercy that Jesus alone can give. O Clement, Sometimes we say the word and not exactly sure what it means. Clement means mild, merciful in disposition or character, lenient, compassionate. Compassion, it's a beautiful word. Compassion in Latin literally means to suffer with. She is a mother who is compassionate, lenient, merciful, mild in disposition. We need to ask Mary the Holy Mother of God, to pray for us that we may be made worthy of the promises of her Son, Jesus Christ. One of the great saints of our church is St. Irenaeus. And Irenaeus had a beautiful image of Mary as a mother. And it was called the undoer of knots. And you may be familiar with this image of our Blessed Mother. St. Irenaeus wrote, that Eve, remember last night we talked about original sin of Adam and Eve, and Eve and Adam's disobedience to God. St. Irenaeus wrote, Eve, by her disobedience, tied the knot of disgrace for the human race, whereas Mary, by her obedience, undid it. And thus this image of Mary as the undoer of knots. Even the most tangled knots are loosened by the grace of Jesus. And Mary, when she said yes to the angel Gabriel, opened the door for God to undo the knots of the ancient disobedience. Mary, a mother who patiently and lovingly brings us to her son, untangles the knots of our life. And again, last night we focused upon asking God, what is that sin that is right now the knot in my heart that is preventing me from loving God and my neighbor. And tonight, my sisters and brothers, I want to take a few moments in silence as you gaze upon the face of mercy. And I'd ask you to think of a particular person in your life right now, or perhaps someone who has already died from a long time ago, in which you are knotted in your relationship with that person. Perhaps it's a member of your family. Perhaps a co-worker. Perhaps a nosy next-door neighbor. I want you to think of the person in your heart right now with whom you are not at peace and not ready to forgive.
I ask you as you gaze upon that blessed sacrament exposed in the monstrance to image the face of that particular person because that person is Christ. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you cared for me. When I was homeless, you sheltered me. Lord, when did we see you hungry or naked or thirsty or in prison or sick? Whenever you did it to one of these least ones, you did it to me. Conversely, those who said, But woe to you, because I was hungry and you didn't give me any food. I was thirsty. You did not give me drink. I was naked. You didn't clothe me. And what do they say? They say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and not feed you? And Jesus says, when you failed to do it to one of these least ones, you failed to do it to me. Interestingly, they're saying, Lord, if we would have recognized it was you, we would have done it. It is him. That is Jesus, that person right now that in your heart... Untying the knot, asking our Blessed Mother to help. It's not easy, but necessary. For a few years, I was the director of our retreat center in Wichita, the Spiritual Life Center. And the chapel of our retreat center is called the Chapel of Mary, the First Disciple. It's a beautiful title of our Blessed Mother. Her first act of discipleship was when she listened to the angel Gabriel who came to her to tell her that she was to become the mother of the Son of God. Mary, as a disciple, and this is a key element as far as being a disciple, you first must listen. And then you must decide. And then you must act. Mary listened to God and to the daily events of her life. She was attentive to the needs of her cousin Elizabeth. And when she found out that she was with child, she goes in haste to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who is also with child. We too need to listen to God and to listen to the events that are happening in our own life at this time. A parish mission like this, even though only a few hours, allows us an opportunity to encounter the Lord and to listen to him speak to listen. But listening is only the beginning. Once one knows what is to be done, then one must make a decision. Consider this. God chose a human person to make a choice for the incarnation to occur. That human person was Mary. This young girl could have said no to the angel Gabriel, and the angel would have left her without that decision. But Mary said, yes, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me as you say. And that, yes, is the first act of discipleship. God gives us the freedom as human beings to exercise free choice. Mary made a choice not only for herself, but as a mother, she made the choice for us, her children. Once one has listened and once the decision is made, then one must act on the decision. And this is called conversion. And it is a lifelong journey. Remember yesterday's first reading from the prophet Jeremiah at Sunday Mass? 
Cursed is the one who trusts in human beings. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Last night I asked each of you to begin praying to the Lord, asking him to diagnose which deadly sin is most operative in your heart at this stage in your life. This is the beginning of trust, and trust is a necessary element of being a disciple of Jesus. Mary trusted. She trusted the words that God had said to her. And the last words, interestingly, in all of Scripture that are attributed to our Blessed Mother Mary occurred in the second chapter of John's Gospel at the first miracle of Jesus. When, in fact, Jesus and his mother Mary and the disciples were invited to that wedding feast at Cana in Galilee, and the last recorded words in sacred scripture of Mary, when she said to the servers, do whatever he tells you. What a beautiful example of discipleship. You are here on this parish mission and you are listening. But now between tonight and March 6th, you need to decide how you are going to walk the Lenten journey of 2019. Once you decide, then you must act, putting your sacrifices into action through those maps of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. My sisters and brothers, during the course of the season of Lent, we do well to listen to the Word of God. I don't know here in Junction City, but sadly across many places, Catholics are not known to, or are not, uh, do not have a good reputation as far as knowing Scripture well. And it's very easy to be intimidated by some of our brothers and sisters of other faith traditions when they start quoting Scripture and we are how sad I tell people well what is God saying to you and they say well God doesn't speak to me father well then I say what is this open your Bible open your Bible pray with it it should not just be sitting on a shelf in a bookcase open it and read it. Tonight I'm going to give you a couple of passages of Scripture and just presenting ways in which by reflecting upon the Scriptures, the Lord speaks in our heart. The first passage tonight is a story that you know well. Again, I ask you to gaze upon the Blessed Sacrament and listen to the story. Imagine that story as you hear these words. This is taken from the second chapter of the Gospel of Mark. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it became known that he was at home. Many gathered together so that there was no longer room for them, not even around the door. And he preached the word to them. They came bringing to him a paralytic 
carried by four men. Unable to get near Jesus because of the crowd, they opened up the roof above him. After they had broken through, they let down the mat on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there asking themselves, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who but God alone can forgive sins? Jesus immediately knew in his mind what they were thinking to themselves. So he said, Why are you thinking such things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, pick up your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. He rose, picked up his mat at once, and went away in the sight of everyone. They were all astounded and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Duh. We have never seen anything like this. My brothers and sisters, think about that paralytic. What did he have? He was paralyzed. He couldn't move. What did the paralytic have? He had a mat. I don't know how big the mat was, but it obviously wasn't too large. But that really became his life. Because he couldn't move, because he was paralyzed. My brothers and sisters, sin does this to us. Sin paralyzes us and we are unable to move. We don't know what caused this man's paralysis. But besides having that mat, he had something incredibly blessed. What did the paralytic have? Exactly. He had four great friends. Those four friends heard that Jesus was there in Capernaum. And likely scripture scholars tell us this house happened to be the house of Simon Peter. Now we don't know that for sure. But we do know that when Jesus went to Capernaum, he often stayed in the house of Simon Peter. I often thought if I was the owner of that house, that would be pretty disconcerting when I have a houseload of people and all of a sudden I see a roof and a hole being made in my roof. These friends had heard that Jesus was there and so they picked up the mat of their paralytic, their friend, and they were undaunted. They were going to bring their friend to Christ. And imagine what thought must have come when they arrived at the house and the house was packed with people and they couldn't get in through the front door. They could have given up and said, oh, well, sorry. No, they did not give up. And so they had to think creatively, what else can we do? We must bring our friend to Jesus. My brothers and sisters, this is our story. And they came up with this idea, we'll go up on the roof 
And in first century Palestine, it was very common that roofs were made of thatch and clay with timbers. And so it was not far-fetched at all that this actually happened. And so these four friends started digging through the thatch and the clay of the roof while Jesus is there teaching. And he looks up and he sees the commotion. And they make a hole big enough. And carefully, they lower the mat, carrying their paralytic friend. And the paralytic is there on the mat, right in front of Jesus Christ. What do you think was the expectation and the hope of those four friends? If I was one of those four friends, after going to all of that effort, I would have hoped that Jesus Christ was going to give my friend the ability to walk. But Jesus looks up, and this is a key element of this whole story. Jesus looks up and he saw their faith. Not the faith of the paralytic. He looked up and he saw the faith of those four friends. And then he looks at the paralytic. And of course, immediately what's happening in the crowd? Murmur, 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 murmur. Jesus says, my child, your sins are forgiven. Now, Imagine if you were one of those four friends and you're looking down expectantly from up on the roof and you're looking down and you hear Jesus say to the paralytic, my child, your sins are forgiven. What would have been your attitude? But I want him to walk. And of course, the murmuring among the scribes was, that man is committing blasphemy. Who but God alone can forgive sins? And what is Jesus saying? I have the authority to do this. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, my child, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, pick up your mat and walk, but that you may know that the Son of God has authority to forgive sins. He says to that paralytic, rise, pick up your mat and walk, go home. And then that line at the end, which is such an understatement, we've never seen anything like this. No. But when we gaze upon Jesus, my brothers and sisters, on that altar, another thing that I'm suggesting for the Lenten journey of 2019 is that we need friends to accompany us on the journey. Yesterday in the homilies at the 8, 9, 30, and 11, I jokingly advised to Father Kyle that he should not share his Lenten practice with his parishioners. But tonight I'm saying to you, we need friends to walk with us, to accompany us on this journey. And again, using the analogy of the physical exercise or the physical examination, People who end up getting into a habit of a physical exercise routine often have something in common. And what is that? A workout partner. Why did Jesus send his disciples out in pairs, two by two? He didn't send them out individually. He sent them out with someone else. I am wondering, my brothers and sisters, because we need to have a friend, a true friend, not Facebook friends, well, I have 320 friends. No. 
In the book of Sirach, it says, A true friend is a sturdy shelter, and one finds a great treasure. You are blessed if you have three or four friends, true friends, your entire life. Those true friends, my sisters and brothers, to be able to walk with them, would you consider reaching out in these next two weeks to a very close friend or two friends or three friends and say, would you be willing to walk with me on this journey of Lent 2019? Well, what would we require? I want to tell you what I'm going to be doing for Lent. Again, not that you're trying to do it for the sake of any kind of recognition. But we need, as Pope Francis uses the word, someone to accompany us. Accompaniment, it's a beautiful musical term. The soloist is the one who is to be the center stage. The accompanist is behind them. But when the accompanist provides beautiful harmony to accompany the soloist, the result is beautiful music. One of the beautiful stations of the cross, which again is a wonderful practice that should not just be done during the season of Lent, but throughout the course of the whole year. One of the stations is Simon of Cyrene, who helps Jesus carry the cross. Who might that person be in your life who could be a friend to accompany you in this Lenten journey of 2019? I served for several years as vicar for priests for the Diocese of Wichita. And when newly ordained priests were first beginning service in their ministry, I wanted to make sure that each one of them was part of a priestly fraternity, that they could talk to those close friends and that they could be in that fraternity to be able to accompany, to challenge, to walk with, to love, to encourage when one is despairing. I have been in the same group of priest fraternity for 21 years. It is absolutely essential in my journey of faith. We cannot walk this journey alone. And thus, for this Lenten journey of 2019, I'm asking you between now and March 6th to think, who might be those close friends that I could invite to walk with me on this journey? And what would you do? Perhaps at least every day, every other day, whatever you choose to do. But you can even text your friend to say, how are you doing today on your journey? You see, we need somebody else to hold us accountable. We're more likely to stay faithful to these practices when we know that someone else, not for the sake of them watching over us, but they are accompanying us on this journey. A true friend is a sturdy shelter. In such a friend, one finds a great treasure. We will be more likely to keep our Lenten sacrifices if, in fact, we have the accompaniment of those friends who do what? Bring their friend to Jesus. It's a beautiful gift. One of the great blessings of my priestly ministry is that I serve as chaplain of Capon's men. 
And Capon's Men is now growing across the United States, and now we have our first Capon Men's group in South Korea on a military base where Father Capon served in the country of Korea until his imprisonment in a POW camp in 1951. But as men, and I'm speaking as a man, we as men are often afraid to open our hearts to anybody. But to see the openness of heart to friends that are walking with us on the journey of faith, we have found in Capon's Men that in order for us to fast, we first must pray. And in order to pray and fast, we need the fraternity of others. I do believe that Jesus chose those disciples so that it wasn't individually, but he spent time with them as a group and that he sent those apostles and disciples out in pairs. That beautiful story of Mark chapter 2, friends bringing friends to Christ. This is what a disciple does. It's not just between me and God. Once I have found Christ, I am called to go out there and bring others to Jesus. And for some, it's members of our own family. Perhaps it's a stranger. Perhaps it is someone that you meet at work. But to be able to engage in conversation with another person and to bring them to Christ, that Christ uses us, One of the types of retreat that I have been involved in for many years is called the Teens Encounter Christ Retreat, or TEC. And on Saturday morning, on the first day of the three-day retreat, the spiritual director and the lay director meet with the candidates, and these are high school juniors, seniors, sometimes freshmen or sophomores in college, that 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old group. And... When I first started giving these tech retreats uh, in the late 1980s, we would ask the candidates, why did you come on this retreat? And what was the common response? My parents made me come. (laughs) I understand. I said, well, at least you're being honest. Good, good. But now, almost without exception, when I ask a candidate, why did you come on this retreat? And their face just begins to glow. My friends told me about this retreat. They said, you've got to come on this. Why did they say you have to come? I don't know, but they said, you've got to come. That is the kind of attitude that we need, is it not? We are supposed to be going out into the world and bringing others to Christ because we have been given something very, very good. And to whom much has been given, much is expected. And if, in fact, we think this is only between me and God, no. We're called to go out. That's the mission. We have been given a great gift. And my brothers and sisters, tied to that is the gift of joy. The gospel is good news. People are looking for good news. There's so much bad news in the world. Who is going to be the messenger of good news? That isn't to wake you up. That's Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. It reminds me of a pastor who was assigned to a new assignment. And so he decided that one of the ways that he was going to uh, 
meet his parishioners would be to make unannounced visits at the homes of his parishioners. So one day he is going into a neighborhood unannounced and he comes to the house of one of the parishioners. He saw the roster as far as the addresses of the parishioners. And so he goes up to the house and he knocks. And as soon as he knocks, he thinks he hears movement inside the house, but no one comes to the door. So he waits a little bit longer and he knocks again. And he's almost sure that there's someone inside. But after a long pause, again, no one comes to the door. So the pastor takes his business card and he writes on the back of it, Revelation 3.20, and he puts it inside the screen door. The following Sunday, after the Sunday Masses, the ushers come with the collection and they said, Father, we were doing the collection, putting the collection in the bags, and we came across this business card that has your name on it. And so we're giving it back to you. And so the pastor was given back his business card in which he had written Revelation 3.20, and below it was written Genesis 3.10. You're not laughing. What does Revelation 3.20 say? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will enter his house and dine with him and he with me. That's what the pastor wrote in the reference to Revelation 3.20. The parishioner wrote in Genesis 3.10, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. God knocks, but he cannot open the door to your heart. He could, but he has actually placed a limit on himself because why? He loves us so much that he gives us the free will to either answer the knock or to bar the door. How sad it is that some have barricaded their heart from the love of Christ. And he waits at the door. There's a beautiful painting that many of you, I'm sure, have seen in which Jesus is standing outside the door. But you notice that there's no handle on the outside of the door. The handle is on the inside, which requires that the person allow Christ in. What is the status of your heart? Are you open to allowing Jesus to enter in the face of mercy? The Lord cannot force us to open our heart. But what is required for forgiveness? A contrite, humble heart. That's all. A heart contrite and humble to God you will not spurn. But again, God will not force us because we are not puppets in the hand of God. He cuts the string so that we are free to act and so we can either choose to open our hearts to him or sadly, we can choose to bar the door and keep him from coming inside. Is your heart open to come to the Lord? My brothers and sisters, last night I mentioned that one of the beautiful acts 
of this journey of Lent is preparing to encounter Jesus in the sacrament of reconciliation, to encounter the face of mercy. Tonight, after the presentation, the reflection tonight, Father Kyle and I will be offering that sacrament of reconciliation. I ask you that you pray for the members of this parish who are in need of the sacrament of reconciliation. Who is that? All of us. But perhaps there's someone here tonight in the church or someone that you know who has been away from this encounter of God's mercy for a long period of time. Pray for that person. And if it's you, pray that God will give you the courage to open the door to your heart. In his letter of 2015, Pope Francis in Misericordiae Vultus, the face of mercy, he is very strong in his wording to us who are priests. And he says to us who are priests, do not make the confession a torture chamber. Perhaps, sadly, there has been an encounter that you have had in the Sacrament of Reconciliation in which the priest acting in the person of Jesus Christ did not treat you with mercy. And if that has happened in your life, I ask you that I, acting as a brother priest for whoever it was, I ask your forgiveness for that time. And if that has happened, will you forgive me on behalf of that brother priest? You're supposed to say, I forgive you. <laughs> Remember last night we talked about it's not enough to say I am sorry. We must ask for forgiveness. And if that has happened, I apologize on behalf of a brother priest. We too are sinners and we too need to receive this sacrament of mercy. We're told in seminary that a good confessor is a good penitent. And as I mentioned last night, we cannot go to confession to, our, to myself. I need to go to a brother priest so that I can experience the face of mercy in that sacrament. And last night we talked about the reasons why people are afraid to go to confession out of fear, embarrassment, shame, despair, hopelessness. If you're one of those individuals, please open your heart because the Lord tonight is knocking. I'm asking you as an assignment for tomorrow that you open your scriptures either tonight or tomorrow. And I invite you to read one chapter from the Gospel of St. Luke. This year, we are reading from the Luke Gospel. As you know, our cycle of three years. So Matthew is one year, Mark is one year, Luke is one year. This is called year C of the liturgical cycle. Year C is the Gospel of St. Luke. And one of the characteristics of St. Luke's Gospel is that it is the Gospel of mercy. And what was St. Luke's profession before he was called to be 
one of Jesus's followers. He was a physician. Do you see now that connection between the divine physician calling us regarding our spiritual life and the physical doctors that look at our bodily need? And the chapter that I'm asking you to reflect upon in prayer is the 15th chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. And immediately as I say that, it's likely that you know the three parables that are contained in Luke chapter 15. Those three parables. First of all, what's a parable? Jesus teaches through the use of parables. It's an earthly story, but it has a heavenly meaning. It is a comparison. A parable can either be a simile or it can be a metaphor. The word parable literally means to throw something beside another, to compare it. The parables taught by Jesus frequently surprised and shocked his listeners. But sadly, because we've heard so many of the parables over the course of time, the shock seems to diminish. Oh, okay. What is the first parable that is told in Luke 15? All three of them are about that which is lost and that which is found. What is the first parable of Luke 15? The lost sheep. And you know the story well. A shepherd has a hundred sheep. He loses one of them and he goes in search of the one leaving the 99. What shepherd in his right mind would do that? So he finds the lost sheep and he's rejoicing and he comes back and guess what? The other 99 have all scattered. What shepherd would do that? But again, because we've heard it so many times, oh yeah, yeah. The second parable of the lost coin. Very good. Remember the widow? She's very poor. She has 10 coins, which were very worth very little. But she loses one of them, and so she does what? She searches diligently until she finds the lost coin. And when she does, what does she do? She throws a party, that's right. Now, what's so crazy about that? The party would have cost more than the ten coins that she had. And then, of course, the third parable of that story of chapter 15 of Luke. The prodigal son. The prodigal son, it's also called the parable of the forgiving father or the parable of the unforgiving brother. Wow. I invite you, my sisters and brothers, to open the scriptures tonight or tomorrow and to pray with that chapter 15 of Luke's gospel. Note to whom Jesus addresses the three parables. It is to whom. I'll give you a hint. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to listen to him. But the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So to them he addressed this parable. 
My sisters and brothers, when you pray those three parables, I don't want you to focus so much upon the shepherd or the woman or the prodigal son. These parables are about God. That God in his tender mercy and unconditional love seeks each one of us who are lost, who have the knot in our heart, that sin that keeps us from loving, that is enslaving us. He loves you. He goes in search of you. As a priest, along I'm sure with Father Kyle, the number of times in which the encounter with the face of mercy, again, gaze upon Jesus in the blessed sacrament on that altar. When someone comes into confession, and I'm sure they don't have the mindset when they first come into the confessional, that I am actually going to have an emotional breakdown. But it happens so frequently that when in fact they start to confess their sin, the mercy of God begins to shower down upon them and a freedom comes that is inexpressible, that cannot be expressed in word, but it's exemplified in tears. And I've heard more than one woman say, oh my gosh, my mascara is going to be a mess when I walk out of the confessional. Thank God! So what? You have a mascara that's running. You have encountered Jesus Christ. Rejoice! That theme drives all three parables and ties them together. When the shepherd finds the lost sheep, rejoice with me because I have found that which is lost. I found the lost sheep. Rejoice with me because I found the coin. Rejoice with me because my son who was lost is now found. That is God's father. That is the father of mercy, the face of mercy. I'm not sharing anything with you that you did not already know. But my brothers and sisters, there are so many, so many who are afraid to come. Jesus is knocking. Open the door. And when you get to that third parable, the prodigal son, I invite you to read it and pray with it three times. First, from the perspective of the prodigal son. And there's one verse that is so powerful. He finally came to his senses. He went to his father, remember, and he said, Father, give me my share of the inheritance that is coming to me. What is he saying to his dad? He says, you're worth more to me dead than alive. But the father does what? The father inexplicably gives him the share of his inheritance. He gives him to the son. And the son loses everything. But he finally comes to his senses. And he says, I will go to my father. And I will say, I am not worthy to be called your son. And I've often imaged that, and I ask you to do the same in your prayer. If you're that prodigal son and you are beginning that walk back to the father's farm, and I've imagined what the father must have been doing. Every day from that porch, he would look and gaze, where's my son? 
And then one day, over the brow of the hill, he sees this figure from a distance, and he's squinting, trying to look to see, could, could that be him? And as the person is drawing closer, the father's heart increases with expectation, thinking, I think it's my son. And i got to get closer, so he starts to run. And I've imagined that scene. I'm seeing my dad running to me. And I'm thinking to myself, he's going to beat me up. Again, that's, that's not what my dad would do. I know my dad wouldn't do that, but I just think, what must have been going through the heart and mind of that prodigal son? He sees his father coming, and the father embraces him, and he doesn't even let the young son begin to say, Father, I have sinned. I don't worthy, I'm not worthy to be called your son. But the father says, Rejoice. Quick, put a finger, ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, a robe on him. Kill the fatted calf. My son who was lost has come back to life. That is the joy that comes from encountering face of mercy in the sacrament of reconciliation. Why are so many afraid? Read the story. Pray with the story from the perspective of the forgiving father. And then... Read the story and pray the story the third time with the unforgiving brother. One of the spiritual books that I have read many times is by Henri Nouwen. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son, A Story of Homecoming. Father Nouwen encountered the famous painting of Rembrandt. And if you've seen that painting of Rembrandt, you already know what I'm talking about. But Nouwen was just captured by the painting, and he spent hours and hours and hours just studying the details of that painting. And he took this passage of Luke and tried to understand what was going through Rembrandt's life as he painted the figures of that return of the prodigal son. Father Nouwen wrote... Rembrandt is as much the elder son of the parable as he is the younger. When during the last years of his life he painted both sons in return of the prodigal son, he had lived a life in which neither the lostness of the younger son nor the lostness of the elder son was alien to him. Both needed healing and forgiveness. Both needed to come home. Both needed the embrace of a loving father. But from the story itself, as well as from Rembrandt's painting, it is clear that the hardest conversion to go through is the conversion of the one who stayed home, namely the unforgiving brother. My sisters and brothers, again, allowing the word of God to speak in our heart. That is the beauty of the season of Lent, living that virtue of hope in balance. Remember last night we talked about that hope is the virtue that is lived in balance, not falling into a defect of hope, which is the sin of despair, not falling into the excess of hope, 
the sin of presumption. Please do not despair. Because the Lord, in His mercy, seeks to forgive us of our sin. This act of mercy is not only of the Father, but it becomes a way for us, a call for us, a decision for us. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Therefore, if we have received this gift, then we are to share it with others. Mercy is the foundation of the church's life. Pope Francis says, and this is a critically important time in terms of credibility as a church. The church's very credibility is seen in how she shows merciful and compassionate love. St. John Paul II says that mercy is love's middle name. To be merciful. Our language, our gestures must transmit mercy so that we can be merciful just as our Father is merciful. I close this evening with one last image. And as we gaze upon Jesus, exposed in the Blessed Sacrament on the altar, and gazing beyond to the back and seeing Jesus on the cross. It is in the Gospel of St. Luke, only in Luke's Gospel, that the story is told of Jesus being crucified between two criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And we again know the story well. St. John Vianney, the patron saint of priests, gave this reflection upon that scene. He said, there are two types of suffering. Suffering with love and suffering without love. The one criminal and in fact, I used this today for the gospel for a funeral mass that I had in El Dorado earlier this morning. The one cries out to Jesus saying, if you are the Son of God, then take yourself down from this cross and take us down. He is filled with anger, rage, bitterness, resentment. But the other criminal reviles that one and says, have, have you no fear of God? We have been justly condemned for our crimes, but this one has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I assure you, this day you will be with me in paradise. Both of them were given the same opportunity to reach out to Christ. One did. He suffered with love. But the other who in his suffering failed to love. He suffered without love. 
My brothers and sisters, all of us suffer. We're all in some type of pain. We're all in some kind of challenging struggle. We're all in some kind of sin. But may our words echo the words of that criminal who said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And may we trust that Jesus says to us, I assure you, this day you will be with me in paradise. As we continue in our preparation for the Lenten journey of 2019, ask the Lord to help you to see that sin that is most in need of mercy and forgiveness. I invite you to think of individuals in your life who could be the friends who walk with you on this journey of 2019 to challenge, to accompany, to hold accountable, to love, to encourage you and for you to encourage them. I ask you to pray for the grace that everyone in this parish family of St. Francis Xavier may trust in the mercy of God and gaze upon the face of mercy. And during this season of Lent, in preparation for the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus, receive the sacrament of reconciliation. Pray especially for those who have fallen into the despair or into presumption, who are most in need of mercy. And let us close again through the intercession of our Blessed Mother, a mother of mercy, that she pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy towards us. And after this, our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary, pray for us, O Holy Mother of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, St. Francis Xavier, Amen. Amen.